0: Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now, and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. Dagan... Welcome back from dystopian near-future Detroit. How are you today, my friend?
1: <laughs> never been
0: to Detroit, have you? No. I've flown in there, I think, once, but I never got out of the plane. Yeah,
1: very yeah. curious about Detroit, you know, since it's been, you know, on everybody's mind the last five years, 10 years, well, you know. More than I mean, that, I would say. Yeah, probably, right, a couple of decades now, right? I always think, what do you think when you think Detroit? I, You know what's so odd? You think of GM, right? You think of General Motors, the whole American car biz, and I always go to M&M. That's the first thing, right? Yeah. Detroit, honestly, like the Red Wings come to mind for me. Okay.
0: Um, I guess all the the Lions, the Tigers, um, and then- and the Pistons, I guess, less, less so. I don't really give a shit about that. But I do like how all of the, or you know, the names like I didn't I never appreciated as a kid that the Red Wings logo is a wheel of a car mm-hmm. with a wing on it, which right. I just never I don't know why I never noticed that when I was a kid. And then, you know, you have a name like the Pistons, right? So like that, which I think is, is pretty cool. But um, honestly, what I think about is and I, I don't mean to be mean is decrepit, abandoned old city. It's it's an example to me of. I don't like many of Donald Trump's. Um, new ideas and his campaign, like the things he's throwing out there. But one idea he has, which I think is interesting and it's never going to happen, but he has this idea to invest in the creation of 10 new American cities in like 10 random locations. I didn't hear like, this. Yeah. Really? Which I, yeah. Yeah. Which I kind of, I kind of like this. It's a very populist idea. Like let's start a new city. Let's build it around a fucking microchip processor or whatever. And let's do it in some random place and just draw everyone there. And Detroit to me is the antithesis of that where I've I've talked to you on the show. If I want to, if I had ungodly amounts of money, right, just insane billions and billions of dollars, I would invest in charities that would go around to places like Detroit. And I'm not even being facetious, knock much of it down and like just return it to the earth. I'm not saying you abandon Detroit, but I would imagine that three fourths of Detroit can probably safely be removed from the earth because no one lives in it anymore.
1: And you don't start a new one, you don't do the Phoenix rising from no, the ashes. No, no, just thing. like
0: let, let it be reclaimed. Let Detroit become a much smaller city. You know? Okay, all right. It's still supported by a, grand, a grander, you know, metropolitan Detroit area. And Michigan is very vibrant. Right. There's a lot of money in Michigan. Um, sure. But I just think, so that's what I think about when I think of Detroit, which is why I think this movie, RoboCop, which we'll talk about momentarily, is so interesting. It's just like the perfect target for this. And back then, it wasn't so obvious that it was going to be like this. In 1987, Detroit was still in pretty good shape, actually. Yeah, uh, Detroit absolutely. was one of the most – I didn't realize this, that Detroit is uh, – I watched a documentary about the car industry in America some some years ago, and they were saying that like Detroit was one of the most affluent places in the country, and by virtue of that, one of the most affluent places in the world, and certainly one of the most upro- upwardly mobile, probably from post-war to mm. – Really before the war, but then obviously they just started making tanks and stuff like that. Then everyone was gone and then everyone came back in the late 40s. And then from there, probably till the early 90s.
1: It does make sense when you think about it, right? Until they squandered it and let the Japanese uh, quality run away with things. You know what's funny about that, man? Not to get off on a tangent, but they had an opportunity, especially, I don't know about the other American car brands, but GM. I don't know if it was Toyota or Honda, so don't quote me, but one of the japanese car companies when the japanese started to gain rapid success in america went to gm and said look we'll teach you we'll show you how we're doing it with fuel economy with smaller cars more affordable cars but higher quality and gm told them to go fuck themselves in not so many words which is really you know the the sense of entitlement was you know it started off with this american pride and a commitment to quality and American power and all these great ideals that they just, I think a sense of entitlement eventually just, you know, where it was, we're going to have all this still, but we're not going to dedicate ourselves to the customer. They're just going to have to buy our crap, essentially. And And uh, I always think it's such a fascinating story. I don't know too much about it, but I find it really fascinating whenever I find another little morsel of information it's, it's kind of fascinating. I'm really intrigued with this new city thing. I want to know more about this. Like, where are they going? Yeah, let me see. And if I'll, I'll what states some. are getting these things? Is there any state that doesn't have a big city? Any state? Uh, I mean, a lot of the Midwestern or Wisconsin big by their terms.
0: But yeah, there are plenty of states that don't have. I, like, I think Vermont, Vermont's capital.
1: Vermont, Montpelier. Uh, Montpelier. I think yeah. it has like 50,000 people or something. Yeah. yeah. And so, No, like tall buildings. and no. Yeah. That type of thing. Yeah. Mont, Vermont's a good example.
0: He said it's uh, CNN. Former President Donald Trump on Friday proposed building up to 10 futuristic freedom cities on federal land. Part of a plan that the 2024 presidential contender said would create a new American future. Um, Light on details is one of the headlines. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was a, uh, but yeah, so right now I, I just, just think people fiction. move around. There's more people in the United States than ever. That's going to sure. continue to happen for a while until we enter this Malthusian sort of decline that will happen in China much sooner, but will happen here as well. And places will be built and then abandoned. And we have to be willing to just kind of shove that stuff back into the land and just let it, because I think part of the reason Detroit is so depressing is not that people are leaving or that it's not what it once was, but, but that it's, it's constantly reminded of what it once was like, you don't need to exist amongst this, this ghost town. That doesn't it, that doesn't represent the reality of that city at all anymore. It's okay, it, it happened, but it's done. You know, mm-hmm. no one's going to buy those houses. No one's moving back
1: there. It's yeah, over. it's tough. That's a tough climate. You know, um, really tough. So,
0: but could yeah, you bring
1: that, industry back and grow? You know, uh, a place, a city around that again? I don't know. Yeah, really? Or is show. that you know? I know what you're saying though. Is that just? sentimental in other words does it make sense to rebuild here just because it was here and we remember this place and its greatness as well by the way right is it does it make sense to go somewhere else or does it make sense to build on that you know ground zero or whatever i don't know dude it's pretty crazy i mean um i'm looking at the demography
0: of detroit and this is all relevant because we're going to talk about robocop obviously but um peak Population in 1950 census: 1.8 million. Okay, wow. It's 620,000 now. Wow. And that's in the 2022 estimate. The 2020 census had it at 639. So even in between that and the census, it's 20,000 more people out. Between 2000 and now, it went from 951 to 620. So the city is just eroding away. It's a rate. It's being. It needs to be erased along with the people that are mm-hmm. leaving because it's not going to recover. It's never going to recover maybe it settles somewhere in like the 500 like a $500,000 or 500,000 person range but um, right but I think it's a pretty canny selection although maybe this maybe people started seeing this trend because I'm looking at the demography from the census 1980 1. 1.2 million and then 1990, 1 million. so while this movie was being created I guess there already was a flight from Detroit sure yeah 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 um and it was becoming I guess better known for crime but yeah it's sad dude like population increase 1910 to 1920 so 113% increase in population 1920 wow. to 1930 57% and then you get to like 1950 to 1960 -9 1960 to 1970 -9 1970 to 1980 -20 1980 to 1990 -14 these mm. are percentages that trend does make sense yeah yeah It's pretty interesting, interesting. yeah and the japanese just beat the shit out of them you know what i think it is Dave? part of it and you saw a little bit we always bring up mad men but i'm, I'm I've, i remember that i love the I mean, it's painful to watch and it's tough to watch. But when Roger gets really mad, I I don't know if it's Honda or Toyota or one of the Japanese companies comes in and he has like no time and he has like crazy beef with them or whatever. Yeah, I do wonder if the American manufacturers were like, there will be generational beef between the Americans and the Japanese. People will not want to use Japanese brands. And I don't know. And the same thing with German brands. And I I wonder. Oh, yeah. I wasn't around for this, but at some point it became okay. And I don't know if it's because we so thoroughly won those wars and then became friendly through the Marshall Plan and all that stuff where they became reliant on us. But by the 70s, people are like, oh, yeah, I drive a Toyota or I have a Sony TV and all these kinds of things. And I think that that. I would imagine that turned quicker than people would have thought, like the kids of the people who fought in World War II against them are now buying their products, sometimes emblazoned like Mitsubishi, the fucking creators of the zero. That killed thousands of Americans, you know, and all these things. So I do think that that has something to do with them telling them, like, go fuck yourselves. We don't need you. We, you're not going to be relevant here anyway. It totally makes that, sense. and I think that was a misreading.
1: Yeah, we fought a war. Mm-hmm. It takes time. And, you know, money speaks, money talks. I think by the time enough American cars broke down on the side of a road and then people realized, hey, I could buy this Japanese car. It's going to last 200,000 miles. Problem free as long as I change the oil every three thousand miles. You know what I mean. It just makes sense. Like that, the, the quality became a commonly known thing, and that you know people were like, I could spread ten thousand dollars a lot further if I buy foreign, right? And the American car company responded to that by just making worse products. Which no, is it was so very sad. weird. I
0: think it, it, I don't. I don't know anything about cars, but it seems from the outside to have come to a head during the financial crisis. Because mm-hmm. that was when they had to be bailed out. And people were like, "What in the fuck are you guys even doing?" I think at that time there was like a lot of rage about it. Like, what are you doing, right? How did this become like this? this so, and I also think a lot of it was like the the repatriation of some in some way of bringing those cars here, like Japanese cars being made in Tennessee and Arkansas and all these random yes. things, and right people kind of seeing that oh this actually does benefit our economy oh and they're not unionized so there's like no complications I watched these car guys on YouTube that are really interesting just about they're like car resellers and used car and, and dealership people which I, I don't know I just find it interesting and uh, they were saying that the UAW situation with the American car companies is such that they they suspect that the car companies don't even care because it is so expensive to borrow money right now that they're like fine we have nothing to sell anyway we don't care we have so many cars stay on strike we won't pay you for six months <laughs> That's the complicated so, situation they found themselves in. That sucks. In, yeah. That really um, does. The timing's not good for them. No, not at all. But uh, And that brings us to a conversation about Detroit and RoboCop for 1987. But before we get there, I mean, is everything else well in your life? Everything? Yeah, yeah. Thanks yeah. for
1: asking, man. Everything's good. good. Another weekend. We got we got a week to the big day. I mean, yeah, I know this, the, the week from day today is- when we're recording. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Just- yeah. So a lot to look forward to. And, you know, the time moves so fast. Your wedding is going to be here tomorrow, basically. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm I'm not I don't know
0: what I am about it. I'm not I don't think nervous is the right word. I, I keep saying this, that Micah and I are different levels of stressed out about it, where I am And I'm sure she cares about this, too, but I don't think it's what's on her mind is where I'm like, I just want people to be where they want to be. So I want everyone to have a good time and be glad that they came. And I don't give a shit about anything else. And I think she's. Like I don't care about the ceremony. Like as far as like what it's it's funny. All of our friends are going to be there. It's not very serious, right? Anyway, I'll tell. I don't know if I sh- should. I tell the audience. Yeah, I'll tell the audience this now because it will already happen. I think I'm coming out to the heat is on by Glenn Fry, which I'm really excited about. <laughs>
1: I didn't know about
0: this. yeah. So like it's going to be a totally silly. Like not you know our brother in law is marrying us. Who's right? A, like a, a high school principal, and he's super funny. And uh, he actually came over and he was like all worried He had like, his notebook out. It's like so, what do you got? I'm like, dude? You are worried way too worried about this. I'm like, he was making me. I was making him laugh. I'm like, just vamp a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, so we're we're and then we have like the the, the sign for the Micah did this. The she did all of this. the The sign where the seating chart, but it's it says take a seat at the top, and then it's got a picture of Chris Hansen next to it because it says take a seat. So like that's kind of the nature of the wedding. You know, I love it's not. It. So I think that it's a good, ending. great food, awesome venue. Really, yeah. really nice golf club here in central Virginia, um, like. Uh, country club, like b- Bushwood, and I never slice and then <laughs> so we're going to have, you know, indoor, outdoor, it's going to be good, whatever we need. So I'm not worried, but she's she she's worried about like, what if the flowers don't come? What if the hair person doesn't do this? Oh, what no. if the And I'm like, the only thing I'm worried about semantically is like, I hope I fit into my suit and I'm af- and I'm afraid of trying it on again. I tried it on at the place when they gave it to me and, and we made some alterations, but I'm afraid of trying it on again because I don't want to wrinkle it, you know, but then I'm oh, like, you, you probably yeah, should you're... try it on, you know, yeah, just it try is it on made put for like that. Yeah, I don't know. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. You're and then, be fine. Uh, dude, the thing I got to do because I got the custom made shoes is I have to, I have to start wearing those this week because apparently oh, like, break I'm going to be in. hurting on the,
1: in those if, that, if I don't do that. Well, year, do so. you feel like there's a certain time you could just kind of shuffle off those shoes and just slip on some vans or something? Sure, but I, paid a lot of money for these shoes <laughs> it's like <laughs> i might as well get some wear out of them yeah this is going to be it yeah
0: yeah so anyway that's like that's where our heads are at. Larry. i think mike is much more worried about the semantics which i appreciate because she's done all of those and that's important and i'm more worried about the big picture like will people be glad they came will the like will be good i'm also i gotta be honest like the less I see a person, the more nervous I am about their coming because I feel like I need to tend to them more. And I I I've you been told by this. multiple people like you cannot worry about that because it's simply not going to be possible. No, yeah. people but it's don't like, Dude, I haven't that. seen Eric Castro in years, you know, since I left California. I haven't, you know, seen Mike Pope in seven years, probably. I haven't seen Doug since he got married in two thousand ten. Oh, you wow. Know? And it's like, so I'm going to see them for two minutes each or something. I'm like, I don't know. And then they're coming all the way here. That's the stuff that makes me feel awkward. And nervous. Yeah, but you know, it's like have, they they're going all that. the way here. Like I was in Doug's wedding party. I was up Doug's ass at that, that weekend because we were all together. But right. it's like the exact opposite. You know, sure. I don't have a wedding party. You're my best <laughs> man. And that's it. That. Yeah. Um, you guys kept it very
1: simple. I like yeah, yeah. there. People aren't expecting that. They know it's your big day. And I know you're worried about how you're going to distribute yourself. I, I remember worrying about the same thing. I remember trying to talk to people as they sat in the pews when they came into the church for the ceremony. Cause I knew that would be the only face time I would have with, you know, my in-laws best friends that came or whoever, you know, whoever was kind of lower down the totem pole as far as like importance or who I was going to be spending time with. But you really can't because you have to realize they don't have expectations of that. You know, hey, how are you doing a handshake and a pat on the arm and you know, that's it. What's cool about it is you're going to have this assembly of essentially all the most important people in your life. Right. All together in the same room, which is just a cool, that's just a cool thing that's rarely going to happen. So it's dope. It's, it.
0: it's super dope. I, I'm excited about that. That's what I feel bad about, though. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. God, I would I love to sit you. for an hour with you at like Doug's wedding was funny because I, I, I knew some people, I knew a lot of people at the wedding. He was my roommate in college for a couple of years. And um, the, I remember the wedding going like that because I just, we just all sat at a table and talked and then the wedding was over you know so i know you can get caught into that and i obviously won't be able to do that here either but anyway that's we'll have more to say i want to do a whole constellation episode about the wedding um so we'll we'll get to it on the on the appropriate show but dig glad you're doing well i'm okay too that's all that's on my mind recently
1: yeah you got you guys got big things coming up i the only my only wish list for your wedding I i just thought of this now i want your dais to be like 30 feet above the rest of the people like a drum kit like putting a drum kit on the stage like proper royalty right (laughs)
0: like sci-fi royalty (laughs) that would be sick too late for any special requests unfortunately Okay, everything's everything's locked in and uh, ready to go but we have about 100 people i don't even think i know 100 people so
1: who are are these people
0: yeah like who i want the day the day before i want to sit with um well there's two things mike and i need to practice dancing like for our, our song and then um, which is R. oh AM. slow dancing. Yeah. Slow dancing, which oh, isn't like really not a bit REM's at my most beautiful, which is, Oh, song. I didn't know this. I love that song. That's a great choice. I never heard of that being a song, but that, yeah. me- that's a great choice. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, our second, our second choice was well, Mr. Kitty's after dark. I don't know if you know that song. It's kind know, of like a no. like an no, electro no, no. song. Um, but that was the one we went with. I, pu- I put on the inside of her ring after dark on the inside of her wedding band as like an ode to that. Being Very romantic. Choice. And people Very are going to be cool. like, oh, that's dirty and stuff. And I'm like, no, it's just the name of the song that there- there may be a double entendre, though.
1: I like the innuendo. Actually, <laughs>
0: Yeah. She wrote on the inside of my ring, the butter to my bagel, which I think is cute. It more. had to be a food thing with my. Yeah, and, and the Long Islandy kind of thing as well. Oh, right. very nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't even see. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. So soon enough, my friends. But let's get into something a little darker. Hopefully our wedding <laughs> is not as dark as Robocop <laughs> from 1987. Now, Dick, I asked you to do this movie for or for a very specific reason on knockback. Is that so similar to how I have to be very judicious with my time. I said this during the Avatar conversation, and when we did Avatar, the 2009 film, I said there's a game coming from a studio I like. I want to familiarize myself with the f- subject matter. And so I did that. And this is kind of a similar situation, although coming from a somewhat different perspective in that I've seen RoboCop. I just don't really remember very much of it. This was like a heavily edited Channel 11 TV movie in like the early 90s that would get rid of like a lot of the violent parts. And it was probably like on Showtime or wherever the hell we had at, at any given time where I would see it there too. So, So that when I was watching this film, I was like, oh, I remember this. I remember this. But I don't think I ever actually explicitly one time sat down to watch RoboCop and I've never seen anything else in the RoboCop series. So this Hmm. was and so to introduce it and bring it full circle, there's a game coming out in early November, a RoboCop game, and there's a demo for it on Steam that people have been playing and it's supposed to be low key good. So with that, I was like, oh, maybe I should check out RoboCop because I don't like the poser, you know, I don't like the poser energy. (laughs) So you got to familiarize yourself. You got to know what you're doing. Let's not be crazy with it. How many of you were playing Spider-Man 2 right now without having playing Miles Morales? Shame. Oof, son of a guns. Shame. So that's roots. why I chose this. And so I wanted to familiarize myself with it. Um, Paul Verhoeven, I think that's how you say his name. Yeah. 1987 film. I was two and a half years old, going on three. When this movie came out, don't remember it at all. So I want to ask you first what you think of the movie on an overall way, what you remember about it. Did you see it in the theater or whatever? What, what, do you, what are your reflections on it? But what I'm interested in too here, Dig, is how ahead of its time this movie is and how it's not very good, but it's surprisingly deep. And mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever or I don't want to say ever. That's pretty rare when you're like this kind of is kind of not very good. There's the the CG or whatever the special effects you would call CG, the special effects not yeah. very good. Uh the acting okay. The shoot, the quality of the film is even not very well. There's like things like scan lines on TVs and just annoying shit like that. And I'm like, God almighty, what the fuck were you guys doing? There's like a lot of that stuff. I'm not even a stickler for that stuff. And I noticed a lot of that stuff. But there's so there's all of that. And then I'm like, but this movie is actually really deep. It's very strange. I I don't I don't know. And so it kind of is very harmonious. We're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I like Robocop. I think it's pretty good. And in just reading a little bit about it, I try not to read too much about these things so I don't spoil it for myself and come up with other, other people's ideas. But I didn't realize that this movie is actually very well respected. That it was kind of well respected back then and people liked it. Obviously it did well in the box office, but that over time it has become an almost prescient movie, very yeah. similar to Blade Runner, which in and of itself is the inspiration for Robocop. But So I give it to you, Dave. To kind of take it away. I'm curious what the memories of 1987 were. Did you see this in the theater? What What do you remember about it? Did you like it? Go on and
1: take it away. Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, as far as iconic retro sci-fi we had to do this for knockback, right? This has been on the list for a long time. And I understand, like, I like the way you brought it out. It's timely associated with this RoboCop Rogue City video game that's coming out in early November. But, you know, first-person shooter, which, by the way, does look very good. Watch some gameplay footage of it just to get my association with relevant modern RoboCop. But, man, when you texted me that we are going to do this, what's the first thing I said to you? I said, oh, shit, Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. And... I saw this in the theater in 1987. I was 13. It was that period of time that we talk about a lot on the show between, I would say, the mid-80s to the mid-90s, that 10-year range where we just saw every popcorn flick in the theater. And this was one of them. But this was a weird one for me because I do distinctly remember not liking this movie. And I'll I'll, I'll go into reasons why, you know, growing up, because it basically boils down to the fact of we had this we were exposed probably for the first time at least for me there was a level of violence and on-screen visceral blood and guts and gore that we were a accu- that we were not accustomed to in our action movies that wasn't a thing yet so it takes the it really I do remember thinking like it took the visual shock and awe of let's say something that I shouldn't have watched a little earlier like a John Carpenter's the thing and then put that in with our sci-fi which we weren't used to you know we were used to above board fun level of on-screen violence star wars gi joe transformers and all that kind of thing and i remember Paul Verhoeven was probably the third director name that I knew by heart that I associated with a certain flavor of movies. The first one being George Lucas, right? Star Wars, we were huge fans. Everything George Lucas did, we were excited about. The second one, Steven Spielberg, E.T., Raiders, eventually Temple, right? Temple of Doom. So Steven Spielberg was the second one where it's like you looked forward to what he, you were excited about what they were going to give you. Paul Verhoeven became like a thing for me, like, oh, shit, that's a Paul Verhoeven movie. I'm not going to like it because it takes the same sort of flavor of his big three for me growing up, which was RoboCop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers. All of which, by the way, starting with RoboCop, I saw once in the theater And I felt like that was enough. And again, it was, it was this overarching feeling that I couldn't even explain. Like I could explain and articulate now, but it was a whole thing of like, that's not fun. The way you're doing it. Isn't fun. I don't like it. And, The other thing is that's important, I think, to note now is that I was too young to get the satirical aspect of things. Right. Whatever (laughs) impact he was trying to make and whatever message they were trying to send with this movie, both comedic and serious, I would say. You know, it has a little bit of Doctor Strange love vibes in parts and a little bit more serious, Mm -hmm. you know, Christ parable crucifixion Mm -hmm. thing going on. Mm -hmm. I didn't get any of that. All I understood was when I watched Star Wars. And a stormtrooper gets shot. I don't see the blood splatting against the wall. I don't see an Ewok's leg being blown off. That's <laughs> not fun. That Imagine I'm cool because that's not an fun. ATST
0: like a Scout Walker just stomping on an Ewok.
1: <laughs> and I just and it made me think, you know, that's really what we were steeped in, especially us Gen Xers, because you were little, but like it was like Cobra officers parachuting to safety, stormtroopers shooting wildly off target when they do get hit. They get a little singe mark on their breastplate and fall to the ground. That's what we were used to. We were used to that sort of, we were definitely used to the good versus evil gunplay thing, but there was a very specific, I want to say almost cavalier, very fantasy, fantasy style brand of showing the violence. It was, a, it was a good time. And it probably does harken back to like a swashbuckling entertainment recipe style thing that probably goes back. If you think about it to like three musketeers and Robin hood and King Arthur and cowboys and Indians that were like made for television, good guy versus bad guy. Pew, 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 pew. That's what we were used to. If we wanted to see horror, we would watch Friday the 13th or the thing, something like that. But we didn't really, or there was like really buoyant, jaunty, buddy cop shit like lethal weapon or tangle and cash we weren't i was not ready for the scene where murphy gets you know blown to pieces <laughs> it's it's funny it's, it's like sh- i was shocked <laughs> and i was like that's enough and the other weird thing to say about it is the presentation and the level of on-screen violence and i think it's just a matter of taste and style and tone right we talk about that a lot on the show but the weird thing about this was okay. You have Brian De Palma, right? He gives us Phantom of the Paradise. He gives us Carrie. Gives us Scarface. There weren't Scarface play sets in the store. I didn't have Carrie bed sheets, right? RoboCop had toys, T-shirts, coloring books, instant mac and cheese, pajamas, breakfast cereal. You name it. There was a cartoon. You know, this was branded to kids. There was a cartoon, right? There was a cartoon series in 1988. You know, just it just I vaguely remember that storybooks on tape. I mean, every single merchandise product tie in that, even as a 13, 14 year old, I was like, this is weird. Has anybody seen the film? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that That's it was now that would go on. You know, now it's like now you do get the toys that are inappropriate. Right. You have Super 7 and NECA and reaction and all these brands that do that kind of thing. We have the it clown with the kid's arm hanging out of his mouth and stuff like that. But back then that wasn't a thing. So Mm. this was really an important sort of flashpoint for the way pop culture and nerd culture would go, because it was the first time I, I don't know if anything predates Robotech with this exact flavor, but for me it was like a, it was the beginning of that B it was I already knew from being a young teenager that I don't, I don't like this. (laughs) It's just, it's not, this is not my style of thing. Now watching it, I understand the satirical underpinnings and that you're parodying things and society and crime and corrupt mega corporations and all these things. But I didn't have, without that, it was really shocking for a then teenager, you know, young adolescent really practically. And uh, that's really what I remember was how different it seemed from the things I liked. And I didn't like it. I only saw it once until I watched it again Hmm. for our recording. And then I watched it again with the the director commentary, because I really wanted to see what Verhoeven said, because I really don't like his style. I still don't. I appreciate it now, but it's not for me.
0: Right. No, I I, did. You were you familiar? What were you familiar with before RoboCop from him? Was because I know he did a bunch of movies before that, but I don't know any of them. Nothing yeah. at all because I was yeah, looking. At his... He was
1: active in Holland as a professional filmmaker for at least a decade before they brought him over to the states. He always reminded me of a lot of a, of a David Cronenberg, like he always mm. somebody who seems fixated, you know, like Cronenberg with the body horror. Somebody who seems fixated on telling a story a certain way, and it's a authentic vision. Like I'm not Verhoeven's a, kind of a genius. And also very consistent, in what he does. And I know later he did other things that seemed different than what we got to know him as, like Basic Instinct and stuff like that, which is a which which are different. Yeah, Basic Instinct. Big three. The basic for me,
0: Instinct had like such an interesting reputation when I was a oh, kid. I, I kind of had to see it on the down low, and I definitely was like nervous the entire time. You know, that was he probably his biggest, a knack. That's his for, biggest hit, though. I think.
1: Yeah. I'm yeah, sorry, I would say so. Biggest crossover as far as the widest appeal and also has a knack for really getting into the pop culture subconscious no matter what he's doing but for for me robocop total recall was like robocop 2 and starship troopers which a lot of people get mad at me for not liking was kind of like Robo, robocop 3 it was like this is the same thing i don't i i appreciate what you're doing here but if i if i'm doing the kaiju thing like i don't i know godzilla's taking mad bodies but I don't want to see it. Right. It's just, a <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, just imply yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. I do think it's important. It's an important part of the meta commentary though. And this is, it's funny because I didn't know enough about when I, when I Paul Verhoeven, I think of um, total recall and RoboCop. I don't think I even knew until I was reading more about him that he did showgirls, which I did see And that. Yeah. Um, it's another big it one. It should be reiterated that it can't be understated. I don't think people that weren't around know how weird that movie was when it came out, Showgirls. Specifically because Elizabeth Berkley was, it it had nothing to do with Paul Verhoeven. It was Elizabeth Berkley as that character because she was, it was the antithesis of her character on Say by the Bell and people were like, what the fuck? And honestly, a similar thing happened, although a much higher trajectory with uh, Tiffany Amber Thiessen because she went on 90210 where she was like a fucking pothead and did all these weird things. It was was so interesting. I remember that. I remember watching that at the time because I used to watch it with Dana and, And keep up with it even on my own. And I was like, you know, as a 10 or 11 year old, which is so funny, like watching 90210. Never watched Melrose Place, but I like 90210. And and I remember her sitting on the on like a windowsill in the in the Walsh's house smoking a joint. I was like, what the fuck? She was the bad girl. It was so interesting. So but so I didn't make all the connections, but I did not connect him to a specific product. And I don't know why it is, which is Starship Troopers. Now, It's funny because I, I don't know if I said it to Micah, but I was thinking it to myself. I might have said it out loud. I'm like, this, remi- th- this movie reminds me of Starship Troopers. And I like, so Starship Troopers is more special to me as like the, the 50s novel, you know, um, by Heinlein, as opposed to the, and I, I meant to get my copy off the, the shelf to show people. It's not a very long read if you want to check out Starship Troopers, but the 90s movie obviously was really good too. And the 90s, you, I don't know if you remember it. I saw it with dad in the theater. I was in eighth grade. Dad and I used to go to the movies fucking constantly and uh, we saw Starship Troopers and I remember the commercials, the interstitials. And I was like, oh, it's the same thing. Like RoboCop is literally, I wonder if that's like in the reviews of Starship Troopers. They're doing the same exact thing in in Starship Troopers that they did in RoboCop where they have like the news things and the the fascist commercials and (laughs) all of the crazy shit. It's the same thing. And so I was kind of proud of myself to, be, to notice that similarity without having realized that it was the same, literally the same person because I had no idea who did the Starship Troopers film. And that movie just came out or just came up with Jaffe, who I think is a fan. He quoted it to me and he's like, oh my God, I have no idea what you're saying. And he's like, oh, I guess you weren't that big of a fan. I'm like, It's
1: right. true though. That same through line as far mm-hmm. as I think stylistic imprint and a very specific visual stamp. And you got to give him credit like, not a sentimental filmmaker by any stretch. Of- He's going to say this is good versus evil. These giant insects or these hideous criminal drug lords. These are bad guys and they do bad shit. And that's what we're saying here type of thing. And we're not going to pull any punches. I, d- I just think I'm too squeamish for that. And I w- it's funny, though, that I haven't changed like I was then. And this was kind of my introduction to it. And then I am now <laughs> really well, haven't changed.
0: Well, Think about this. In my opinion, Dig, it's like. How deep is the meta commentary in a movie like Starship Troopers or RoboCop? Mm-hmm. To me, the movies wash out as right wing, truly right wing pieces of of. especially mm. Starship Troopers, the book. I mean, there's like, like literally no, yeah, literally I no doubt about it. that. But, okay. um, but for me, I look at it as like you could interpret it as so stringent a meta commentary that it's actually a a reaction and reactionary book or a commentary on that itself in other words robocop seems pro-cop like there's really nothing about it that makes an anti-cop stance you could imagine a modern robocop and i know they remade it i never saw it but you could imagine in this much more anti-police mentality kind of you know whatever we have going on today which i think is undeniable that you can make a real commentary that lampoons the cops and that that would be interesting in and of itself with sure. robocop just being out of control but it's really not about robocop it's about the companies it's about the corporation specifically the corporation having control over the the police um which is itself like a right-wing move but also a right-wing commentary but it is that in and of itself kind of a left-wing observation i guess that's what i'm saying like you could you could interpret both pieces as whatever you want because it's i actually think that they're that deep that's what i was so surprised about with robocop like the commercials are fucking hysterical, dude. They talk so about good. something happening at Lee Iacocca High School. <laughs> I'm like, dude, these are funny ass jokes that they got in very there. Very
1: funny, <laughs> like seriously, cutting, real. In some cases, very sharp humor. It's and by the way, I meant to look this up. The "I buy that for a dollar" person does that come from this?
0: Yeah, yeah. That okay. whole thing was created for this. Right, that's what we know. thought because that's a famous meme right yes and i yeah, was like course. i don't and she was like is mike was asking me she's like so is that like a commercial at the time and or whatever i'm like i don't think so like I'm, I'm i'm like i think that that does come from this but i don't know and i when i would see that meme around i never thought of robocop but it's like i'd buy that for a dollar you know <laughs> it's just very funny the the, the butler <laughs> brothers game nukem dude my favorite part of the whole movie is that 20 seconds it's hysterical. It reminds me a lot of, you know what it kind of invokes a little bit? That spirit. It's like the through line that connects Willy Wonka to something like this, to something like Family Guy, where it's like
1: snappy, cutting, yep. quick remark on society or whatever's going on. Yeah. Willy Wonka is a great example. So is Family Guy. And, you right. know, that's what was lot. That really is the aspect of this movie, because sometimes it's comedic. And sometimes it's presented very dramatically, melodramatically, I would say. But that's what I miss as a 13-year-old. I didn't see any of that. I. It was the same thing when I watched Dr. Strangelove in our AP English class in high school. I still, as a 16-year-old, was like, I, I don't understand. Like, I kind of understand that you're joking around about something serious, but that's as far as my sophistication got at that point. So now with that added bit of depth, you could understand the genius of this first RoboCop movie. And again, I haven't seen the sequels. I haven't seen the 2014 remake. I don't think I ever even saw the animated an episode of the animated series. I remember or the animated
0: series being on, but I don't... And I remember the toys and stuff, but I, I didn't care. I didn't know. I was actually kind of scared of RoboCop. I remember as a little kid. It wasn't <laughs> until the early to mid-90s, because when, when Terminator 2 came out, which I want to say was 91. Yeah, that I got right. the toys for that. And I was too young for Terminator, but I didn't care. I really liked it. My friends liked it. And then that kind of made me come around to some of the things that I was a little more squeamish about, which was RoboCop for some reason, probably because on Showtime or wherever we were watching it, I was seeing all the visceral violence and it was scary. It was very similar to how in one, that Peewee movie, like Large Marge, like scared the living shit out of me.
1: That's a great and I, example. And I look
0: at that now and I'm like, it's the same thing with Nosferatu. The, the old thirties movie where I'd rent it from the movie theater and then be able to watch it for like two minutes. I'm like, I can't watch this anymore. Yeah. And now I look at it. I'm like, it's scary, but it's like a Colin, were you that this was, again, I was the guy who got used to get tickled in my, in my bed by a, a man in my dreams. So I was, <laughs> I, I was scared of all sorts of, all sorts of different it things. It gets
1: under your, it's just something that large Marge is a great example. Nosferatu dating back so many decades is a great example. People still call it up. It's just something so visceral and genuine, it just gets under your skin, and it stays that way. And yeah, I think Verhoeven's vision, like, and and how it's so opposite of what I would do sensibility wise if I was creating this, that there's just such a harsh contrast, and it challenges me. It really, it sounds funny, but still, when I see that, you know, that part of the thugs comedically, unapologetically, just blowing this guy to smithereens, blowing his hand off to blowing his arm off and just blowing him into chop meat. All right there for you to see. It's not implied. It's not show, don't tell. They're just showing it with 200 squibs and bags of squash or whatever the hell they're doing to make it look real. It's just like, oh my God, as a 13 year old, I was just, you know, I was picturing now watching this, like I'm thinking about something that's Hard to watch. Like, let's say the opening of Saving Private Ryan. I understand why it has to be that way. You're showing how horrific this real life thing was. So at the end, when the smoke is clearing and a young soldier races up and grabs his severed arm and runs away with it, it's horrific. It's haunting. It stays with you. But I understand why. I also understand why. George Lucas at the Battle of Endor, as the smoke is clearing, a stormtrooper doesn't crawl up and grab his severed leg and start crawling away with it, you know, as or you know, blow an Ewok's head off and his armor just splattered with Ewok guts because that's not—I don't know—I just that. (laughs) Thank God. I mean, could you imagine David Cronenberg directing Return of the Jedi?
0: That would be hysterical. I mean, they
1: wanted him to direct. Yeah, it
0: would. It would. It would have been. I would love to see we get a little bit of violence. We I think we talked about this in Phantom Menace. Yeah. Obviously, there's a little bit of violence. Let's say an empire with the the Wampa. Sure. That's kind of violent, I guess. But in Phantom Menace, you see and we we and we say obviously by episode three with Anakin, like it gets violent. But you see like uh, the I actually love the puff of blood that comes out of Darth Maul when he gets cut in half. Like, yeah. I'm like that's kind of violent. I remember even thinking yeah. that at the time. It was very good. You would imagine it would be cauterized or something. And maybe that's the argument that they would use. to Well, if you or, think
1: about yeah. that's a great, I mean, I was thinking about there were always little hints of violence and even the things that we loved. Oddly, I thought there were always weird choices. Like think back to Raiders. The Alfred Molina character gets severed by the spikes in the temple. Right. Right. Star Wars walrus man's arm gets cut off. Same as Wampa right. in Empire. It's right. a quick shot. There's some blood shown. Luke's hand gets severed at the end of Empire. And again, that whole cauterized thing. And then, you know, so every movie did, even those things that we're saying were above board as far as the physical representation of violence on screen. Everything we grew up with did have something. I even think about like poltergeist, pretty toothless, but there's that whole scene with the maggots and the meat. There was always something that to challenge us as kids, I feel like, and that, that's that been largely lost. Now, if you want horror, there's that, but there's the things that are made for kids largely don't have that. That was kind of lost along the way so, at some point. This was just like everything. It, it was just such a larger... It wasn't just one little cutaway of a severed arm. This was really heavy for what we were used to as kids. Again, you know, thinking... Back to having the things that I was attracted to again, like cobra swarms of cobra officers parachuting, right? They they were exchanging fire, like they were battling each other, and obviously they're trying to kill each other, right? But it got to the point where cobra, you know, cobra officers were parachuting from land vehicles, like it was ridiculous, right? But that's what we were used to, right? Yeah, you know, so when we saw something like this. Again, it was and not a horror movie that we were sneaking at night around Halloween. This was an action movie. This is RoboCop. This is like mecca and it feels like anime and comic books and you're giving us this thing. It's like whoa. Whoa. And I think that's why a lot of people do like it too, like the horror buffs. And the, it's, it appeals to their sensibilities. And I get it. You know, cuz it's a very specific sort of flavor. But yeah, man, I, I just, this is, again, having only seen it twice now and just feeling kind of the exact same way. It's shocking. It's like, holy
0: shit. Apparently it was <laughs> going to be even worse. I've never, I don't know if there is like a a, a worse rated version that they release later, but I know mm. that they had to cut it back to get into theaters, which is interesting. And it's funny, man. I, I, I just, again, I just want to reiterate, I, I feel like RoboCop is surprised. There's like a surprisingly deep commentary in it. And that's that I think is what makes it interesting to me because I got to go back and watch Starship Troopers because it's been a long time since I've seen it. But the as I remember it, the movie was kind of an interpretation of the book to kind of play up the criticisms of what the book were, which is like that it's. It's like fascist, 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 militarism, 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 xenophobia, xenophobia, xenophobia. Like they just beat you in the face with it. There you go. And honestly, yeah. in my, when I was in eighth grade, I didn't get any of that. I remember thinking like, oh, the commercials are funny. <laughs> and it's like interesting. And it's just like a very weird, you know, uh, eclectic thing to do or whatever. I didn't know what the fuck, like what they were trying to say. And I think that that that's, it's starship Troopers is like as subtle as like a hammer to the head. And this seems a little bit more And that's not goes to show you how stupid I guess I was when I was in eighth grade. But this goes this I felt like I was like, oh, this is so interesting. It's because it deals with a lot of the same situations that Terminator kind of deals with. Although I think Aliens deals with it with Weyland, Yutani way more seriously, which is like the the huge corporation. And so let's get into this a little bit. We. They open the movie, the TV broadcast, Neutron Bombs in South Africa, the president. Dude, I'm like hysterical laughing as the shit goes on about they just keep going into in the news. <laughs> like, I don't know why this is so funny, but they keep going into the news items about how the, there's a president or an ex-president in every <laughs> one of these things. <laughs> And I'm like, why is that so funny to me? Yeah. And so like, there's a, there's like a the president's like at an orbital platform and then you find two ex-presidents are dead at like this other thing and so on and so forth. And they always start with the, the worst piece of news. And then they just like say like, they very nonchalantly say that they're, you know, they're in their thoughts or whatever. Then they just move on to some other piece of news. Like, it's brilliant. It's just it's totally hysterical. I love it. I love the way it opened. And I think that's really fun. So we after that, we get introduced to the Detroit police station, rough and tumble, Um, They're in their armor, their Kevlar and all of that. And we learn I I like the scene in the beginning with Murphy where he walks in and they there's kind of like they're collecting the things out of the dead cops locker. And you realize that this is a pretty rough and tumble place. We learn that a company called Omni Consumer Products is kind of going to fuse money into a new, I guess, Detroit aligned city, like a twin city called Delta City and they want to control crime and all that. So we're introduced to quite a bit here. So what do you make about the introduction and the way things are framed as we begin uh, RoboCop?
1: Yeah, it sets this dystopian universe. You know, it's a, it's a harsh world. We get that from the news broadcasts, and this is a harsh city in that harsh world. Here it is. Here's the cops that have to deal with this. And, you know, this whole thing centers around this mega corporation that's tied in with the military that essentially is so powerful that it controls the police. And all you know everything that kind of comes with that. And here's this new cop that got transferred in. this other cop was killed. you know and again, just like the callous nature of it that you know just re- removing the cop's nameplate, that's the signal that all the other cops know he didn't make it. Here comes this other cop. and it's just kind of like it's just getting you ready for this battle ahead of you know, I guess the good guys versus the bad guys. it's 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 funny, though. It doesn't really hit you over the head with a dystopian atmosphere necessarily. You see this kind of a sprawling skyline that's really Dallas, not Detroit, but they didn't want to film in Detroit because I guess Detroit didn't have a proper metropolitan look to it like they wanted to do. I guess really what you're doing, like a lot of sci-fi, a lot of dystopian stuff is here's where the rich people live. And then here's where and here's the detritus where all the poor people live in that. Here's that dividing line, essentially that futuristic side of the tracks, different, you know, disparate side of the tracks. So, you know, it's okay, It's interesting. It's not Blade Runner in its visual Mm -hmm. presentation. And also kind of I feel like at this point in the film early on walking that line between, I guess, kind of questioning, like, is this going to be serious Or is this a parody? Like, is this satirical and not really knowing and maybe not enough of a heavy hand in one direction or the other from a filmmaking perspective, because I think at this point, I love, I think the news, the cutaways to the news and the commercials and, you know, sort of that Benny Hill style game show that everybody's mindlessly distracted by, you know, you got all this grave, you got this whole grave, thing going on everything is just crumbling right you're in this world that's so severe but everybody's just into this mindless tv show it's brilliant another commentary it's brilliant dude it's so i mean the, the cutaways to all that kind of stuff is so integral like i don't think this movie would be half the film it is without that stuff so you get that early on and you get a taste of that early on which is really i think it's more that stuff And sort of the world building is more interesting than the whole, I don't know, really more, I think much more interesting than the whole OCP, Ed 209, RoboCop arc. I think what's going on in the world is even more fascinating where it's saying, you know, we're placating ourselves with this mindless television and distractions while all this crazy shit's going on. But we're happy just to kind of watch this vapid TV show. So yeah,
0: it's it's um that's why I'm so interested in the political interpretation of it and I haven't even really read about what his intentions were or what his political ideologies are. But that's mm. why I was so I was expressing earlier that I was finding it difficult to figure out what it was really trying to say because you can interpret it in so many different ways because I come back to this thing that it never takes an anti-copper, anti-law and order stance at all. In fact it shows how bad crime is and how crazy the criminals are. But yeah. it's but it kind of shows this uh, this overwhelming hand. And, and again, yeah, this kind of have and have not or this um, while Rome burns kind of mentality that a lot of people have. And yeah, I really dig that, too. I think it's really especially at the time. It's very clever. You know, this it kind is. of commentary is much more common today. I don't know how common it was back then.
1: And the cops are kind of the pawns. They're the ones to suffer in the middle. Right. You got the, the you know. This whole universe, this whole world being overrun with crime on one side. You have this corporation on the other side who, by the way, is kind of working hand in hand with the crime element. And the cops are kind of hanging in the balance. They're the ones out there risking their lives and dying and being sort of controlled by so many marionette strings, basically. So yeah, you are kind of made to feel sorry for the cops. It's like, wow, it must be hard to be a cop in this world because it's even down to the point of like, what master do you serve? You know, what you're doing is essentially futile. There's no way of winning everything. Everything you're working for or against is all tied together anyway behind the scenes. Right. So, yeah, it sets this impossible situation for the police. And then you're basically following one along.
0: So I um, wanted to talk a little bit about ED-209, the, the police <laughs> robot. I love the scene in the, in the um, conference room where he just blows that dude away. It's hysterical. And, and it, guys, it's just a glitch, a temporary setback. He says in the movie, but um, why did he have to look so bad? That's, that's the thing I don't understand. It's cool design, very Japanese mech style designs. Really, really, yeah. Neat. Something we'd see much more common, but what do you think? Was it, there's obviously, they spent a lot of money on this movie. I don't understand why they couldn't make this look better in the compositing. It just doesn't look right at all. And they focus on it so much later in the movie that it becomes a major distraction, like the staircase scene. Mm. When I, I don't understand what they were thinking here. And you see movies that are just much older, like star Wars is 10 years old at this point. Why not figure out how they did some of what they did to make this thing look a little bit better or come up with some, some other solution. Cause I was distracted by that. And I was also distracted by just some of the visual, the way the the movie falls apart visually for me too. As I said earlier, it's really cool that they have this It's very dystopian. They have all these TVs, these CRTs in there on their wall with their logo on it and all these different things happening on super cool, but there's fucking scan lines on them in the, in the film. Like I I was so fixated on that. I'm like, how do you use this footage? How do you not refilm this in some way? How do you not, how did you not see this on the dailies or when you were looking at everything and, or not care? It looks bad. It looks bad. It makes it look like a home video. And it happens later on too. There's these cool scenes where they're in the bathroom and there's those, they still use them today. Like the things that the, 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 red letters come up on and shoot across like these messages oh, sure. yeah yeah and those have scan lines on them too and i'm like dude you gotta do something about that i just i don't know i don't know if things like that stand out to other people but that made it look feel amateur even though they're trying to do something very advanced and futuristic so what do you think about that whole scene we talk about ed 209 or whatever else i brought up there
1: yeah i mean it's interesting if you think about 1987 specifically because it's kind of in this weird swing time between all the practical effects and traditional movie making technology and smoke and mirrors and the new stuff being ushered in with CGI in just a short time period. So this is a very specific time for movie making magic as it were. And I agree with you, the stop motion, the Phil Tippett stop motion animation, although beautifully done is very off-putting and takes you out of the film. I mean, it's really the same feel as all the stuff he and his team did for Empire Strikes Back, right? With the Tauntauns and the Adats, and then later in Jedi with the ATSTs. And it's in terms of movement and locomotion and the physicality of it, it feels like that stuff. I think it's a shame though because the design of Ed 209, like you said, is probably the thing that holds up the best visually in the movie. Like it was a really cool design. I know they were leveraging sort of what we would come to know as the dragonfly in GI Joe, right? Like the Cobra Bell Huey, the Huey Bell Cobra helicopter Mm. kind of mixed in that, that whole gunship feel mixed in with like a killer whale, which when I read that made so much sense. And that's a very sophisticated thing because you can see sort of like an orca like the front end of an orca in that design but it's subtle but when it when you when you hear that you're like oh shit oddly that does make sense i kind of love the marrying of those two things and just this idea again in a satirical sense of like this thing they created is that is complete overkill like there is nothing you know there is no it's just unstoppable like you created this Robotic thing that once you unleash it, you're never going to be able to wheel it back. And that whole boardroom scene, it's like again, like it's like Doctor Strangelove on steroids. It's like Doctor Strangelove with the gore. It was so I remember just being as a kid being so confused by it. Like, am I watching a horror movie or am I watching a comic? Book? I don't know what this is. And this was before we had more sophisticated offerings to choose from, like a Sin City, right? Where it's like. Frank Miller's comic book, it's much more visceral, it's much more violent. There's a lot more of that sort of world building that gets you acclimated to the violence. This was really the first thing I ever saw that was like that. And this scene, this boardroom scene, though hysterical now with my understanding, had a much different effect as a 13-year-old. As a I was like, what is happening this guy is getting shot to pieces chunks of him are flying everywhere (laughs) he's trying to get away everybody it's so funny if you watch that scene like the way the different executives are reacting like some are drinking water and some are just like freaking out and sitting down like they're about to faint it's so beautifully realized but again if you think of what i can't get past is if you just think of this movie and the automatic tie-ins to kids it was, it's so strange, you know. It's almost like they never did that with the fly. They never did that with scanners. Why this movie? And I think because people just took it as, oh, it's just this robotic cop. It's actiony. It's for kids. It's a, you know, it's sci-fi meets anime meets comic books and that whole thing. But yeah, man, I, I, it really starts with this boardroom scene because there, there's like ten minutes of kind of ten to twelve minutes of like normalcy where it's like, this movie could go anyway. Maybe it is a little more like a Lethal Weapon movie or something. And then all of a sudden this happens, and that's the beginning of the roller coaster ride, where it's like, oh, this is something much different, which is interesting because I think Verhoeven, when he first was offered this script, I remember him saying, you know, this is just silly. Like, I don't even understand what this is. It's kind of like mindless drivel. And his wife was like, no, dude, like, Paul, look at this. There's a lot of subtext here. This is a satire. You got to look at it that way. And when he reread it and he saw it, that's when he wanted to do it. So that's what really spoke to him. So I think, again, that's kind of that parodying, that satirical element is, I think that's why people still love it. And I don't know how it played out in the second two, because I know eventually it got down to PG-13. There Mm. were different directors involved. I think Irvin Kirshner of Empire Strikes Back directed the second one, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Interesting. Which is, so it has a little bit of a different imprint given the directors, because this is the only one uh, Verhoeven directed. And I don't know anything about the remake that happened in 2014. Yeah, me neither. Which is a complete reimag... I, I see it as a complete visual reimagining. It looks a little more like Judge Dredd in the remake. He's more streamlined. I think he's he he looks a little more sophisticated and futuristic. But yeah, man, I, I think this boardroom scene is is definitely one of my favorite scenes because it's just it's really kind of where you understand what this movie is going to be like. And, you know, exactly what the tone is. It's locked in at this point And now you're in for the ride.
0: Yeah, it's uh, what, what do you make of my complaints about some of the visual snafus mm. apart from ed two hundred. Did you notice any of that kind of stuff? That stuff really bothers me. Scan lines on TVs really, really get to me sometimes because they, they, you, you can do it without them, and so like you need to figure that out. <laughs> sure.
1: <laughs> I mean, there were good idea. I think one of the good ideas, besides the cutaways, which I love, is the sort of seeing things through Robocop's perspective, through his viewfinder, yeah. essentially his HUD. I like that, but it, of course, it's dated. It felt like War Games I a little think bit. yeah 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 yeah. there's something that there's something weird about it like i don't know if it's just that now it's so many years on you know we're talking about something that was so many years ago or it's trying to make it feel futuristic i think this movie does a weird thing like sometimes i understand you're making a thing that feels like the far flung future so you think of something like blade runner and what Ridley Scott and his team did with that movie, right? It's so beautifully realized, but it's also so far into the future that you could really make it feel a lot different and a lot more evolved than anything we have now, but still make it feel grounded somehow. This does a good job sometimes in like, okay, futuristic cars still look a lot like the cars we're used to in 1987, but These wheels are a little different. They look a little longer. Their body styling is a little updated. They have a different sort of exhaust mechanism in the back. But it feels believable and grounded. And then sometimes there's things that just feel like 1987 really felt. And then there's other things that make it feel like, okay, well, that this thing looks too far futuristic. Let's say some of the weapons, for instance. And it looks like those things aren't marrying in concert. Like there's some inconsistency with the art direction I felt like with this movie. I'm not sure how that would have spoke to people in 1987. I'm sure we would have been much less critical about it then. But what's cool is that almost everything is still practical in this movie. You know, you have the matte paintings, you have the squibs, you have the sacks of movie blood. You have the comp- the green screen compositing, which is even, I mean, it really it was blue screen at that point. You have any kind of motion control and scale models and all and puppets and the practical effects. I just think that a lot of this, and of course, you know, not to even disregard Peter Weller and everything he did with presenting, you know, playing a robot, essentially like he's, he's miming a robot. There's no in, you know, there's no effects. There's no post on that. He's doing that as a physical performance, which is interesting. I think the ideas in this movie probably came like 10 years too early. Like they probably could have done a lot with CGI. I don't think they needed to do the whole molten metal thing that would come in the early nineties with like a T2. But what's cool about it now, historically and looking back nostalgically is that this is all practical and some of the effects hold up and there's some of the worst shots I've ever seen. There's a shot at the end where the dick, you know, the sort of sinister executive character gets tossed out the window yeah it's and awful. i read that it was it's it's literally the worst effect i've ever seen in a movie it's awful
0: the, like, I, I wrote my notes quote the dude falling out of the building at the end looks so bad why even include it
1: it was terrible i feel like it maybe was a mistake or they 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 included the wrong take or something there's even something about the scale of it when he hits the ground like he hits the ground and he's still too big like there's just something really off with the entire thing it's very pixelated i i read that it was animated which is weird because you would think they would just have the character shot against a blue screen and sort of you know struggling mm-hmm. and then scale it essentially with whatever kind of primitive effect they still had back then but they didn't So there's something weird going on with that. It's very inconsistent visually. I think it does a lot, has a lot of potential, but I think they missed the mark with a lot of it. There's also kind of a weird thing where you would think if they were sophisticated enough, somebody with like an all seeing eye would say, okay, let's just show less or do more off camera or imply something because we're really not capable of showing this believably. So they were pretty bold in what they chose to show. But I think the stop motion is what takes me out of it the most. And now I think there's something about a 13-year-old's eye compared to somebody now, you know, who's nearly 50. And it, it's not it's, – it's, it's like not even – it's a layman thing. It's not even being an animator. It's just you have such – you have more discerning sensibilities when it comes to that. Cause now, even in Empire, when you see the little cutaway and you see the exterior wide shot of the Tauntaun running, mm-hmm. it's like, all right, that they did a beautiful job. That would look really cool for Robot Chicken. But in this dramatic feature film sense, and it's supposed to be this grounded thing, it just looks awful, you know? But you understand it's 1980, it's a whole different thing. There's still a lot of that going on almost 10 years later with this movie. Yeah. Which is interesting. It hasn't evolved at all, really.
0: Yeah. Like with ED-209, it's like I would have just focused on the live action version that they had. Like, why couldn't you just get much of what you needed out of that thing? Yeah, Make his arms move, make his head, head turn. It's like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm not asking you to build a Dr. Wily real robot. Just make <laughs> it so it feels like it's alive a little bit. Get some blinking lights and... I don't right know, i just it, spend some they spent a lot of money on this movie it's like 13 14 billion million dollars you think that like a substantial amount of that would have gone to ed209 to Big make budget, because, because the, the, the the reality is that robocop yeah. himself looks dope i think robocop yeah. looks fucking awesome very and, and, when, and when his helmet's off i was like that looks great yeah i, I, I look he like looks awesome like i'm not even in time it never really stays there very long so you can't really examine it from the side too much but i'm and looking at it I'm like damn, they don't even really let you examine it enough to see where how this all worked out, like how you actually did this. It looks great. Um, it really does. With the makeup a lot of and that all, stuff all of is... that stuff is yeah, it looks super, super and the good. The
1: practical yeah, there's a lot of that with that, you know, that they do a really good job with and they're they're steeped in that tradition by now of doing those practical makeup, making a thing making a guy look like he's his head is half robotic. That stuff is a lot easier because it's more static. I wonder if they chose stop motion specifically for Ed 209 because they were trying to get something comedic out of it. Like saying, Man, like, look at this badass machine we created. It's a stopless, you know, it's, it's this killer who can't be stopped, but it can't get downstairs, right? That's the joke. And look at the funny way it, it has this, it's beholden to these crazy clumsy chicken legs. So I wonder if part of the comedy came from the physical choices but I have a feeling it was more like this is stop motion is what we have. We're not doing this really in the computer yet. Pixar was really just starting that. And this would have been way too advanced for, for anybody at the top of their game in the CGI world at that time. What's interesting, though, is you know what I, do, what I was impressed with with Ed 209 when they were kind of manipulating his stop motion model? There, think back to like the Rankin and Bass stop motion cartoons, like let's say Rudolph. You would have these things where there were sort of a felt skin or texture to the Rudolph models or Santa, let's say. And when he's being manipulated, you could see those little fuzzes jittering around. That was just an kind of an unintended part of the animation where – you would see that texture bouncing around and the smaller details are being moved by the animator in the throes of getting his arm from A to B, but it wasn't really intended that way. It was just kind of part of the process that was just an integral part of what you do and that this is the fallout from it. Like the other little things are going to move around and be distracting. Ed 209 had a lot of little details with the wiring and a lot of nuanced little details parts of him that weren't doing that. like There's nothing jittering around. It's like when the arms are moving or the legs are walking, it's very sophisticated in that sense where you don't see the finger stains. You don't see the wires moving around inadvertently when he lifts his foot. I was really impressed by that and that was probably more in the model building of we don't want to have that effect of like a cartoony thing like an old Rankin and Bass cartoon where you know, you could see the pom-pom of the hat wiggling because when every time the animator touched it, it inadvertently would, you know, walk around a little. So I was impressed by that. I think as far as stop motion animation goes, it's really cool. But again, it's not, it's not robot chicken, (laughs) you know, it's a feature film and it's compositive with a live action actor in the back. So the grounding from a 2023 perspective, it just, it falls apart. I think for me, that's part of the joy of this because it really harkens back to a very specific time period, what they could do then. And there's a boldness, too, with saying, fuck it. You know, we know this is what it looked like in 1980. This is what it's still going to look like in 1987. <laughs> we want to do this. You know, so it's fun. Now you could never do it unless that was the intention.
0: Yeah, that it's it's fr- again, because the design is so cool. It does look like one of those beefy, wily robots you would meet before you get into like a boss room or whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <Totally. sighs> With the cool arm cannons and all of that different arm cannons, which I love too, like that. They do different things. And, but yeah, I don't know. Just a, a small quibble. Really. I mean, as I wrote in my notes, they bring it back and remind you of it, which I understand is necessary for the plot, but it, I'm like, Oh yeah, that did. Cause by the time you get past that, you're like, Oh, you're kind of into it and you're far beyond it in the movie and you're enjoying yourself presumably. And then you get back there and you're like, Oh yeah, that did kind of look like shit. And now it looks really even worse because they really in that staircase scene, they just focus on it so much to the point where I was like, what the fuck is this where it's struggling on its back? And I'm like, it's this is lasting way too long. It's awkward looking. <laughs> yeah, it's turned. I to didn't find it funny much. personally. So that was a miss for me. But dude, one thing I found hysterical and I wanted to talk to you about this was the gun battle with the thugs in the van with the burnt money. Dude, they're driving two miles an hour. And it's so obvious in every shot how slow they're all driving. I don't know if you were. I was fixated on that the entire. That's time. a great point. Yeah, it's hysterical. I don't know if again. That's again. This is about the interpretation of the movie. Is that part of the satire? I don't think so. I actually, it's hysterical how slowly. If you just focus on how how fast they're moving and all the action happening on it, it's ridiculous. It's totally. It's the It's insane. But as Micah pointed out, that character is uh, the main bad guy is red from that 70s show, which I uh, yeah, which is interesting. And it's funny to see him here. So did you you focus in on that during the the van heist? You want the lack of speed? Yeah. The insane lack of speed. There's no
1: sort of. Yeah, it seemed like there's no attempt at even capturing any kind of any sense of like kinetic speed or energy or anything like that. Yeah, it's just, and you you do wonder when something goes amiss like that and it stands out. Like, is that is that part of the comedy, or are they just being sloppy and saying they're going to dismiss that as part of the satire? I don't know. That's the interesting thing about this. But yeah, man, it, it, there's other things too where I wonder if there's also just like the live action and the practical stuff, that's just kind of more straightforward is just so much easier to do that. They're really putting all of their, they're putting all their emphasis on the shots that are going to be composited with the stop motion, with the special effects, with whatever kind of in camera stuff they're going to do with the, you know, the practical solution to gore or matte paintings or whatever they're going to do. And that the straightforward stuff Maybe even second unit, maybe even shot by second unit. I think I did read that they struggled to get a second unit director with this type of thing. So maybe they were resorting to like a C team for for second unit. And I have a feeling with movies like this during that time, it was the less important, less expensive shots that went to second unit. It wasn't just close ups of hands and stuff like that, that it would traditionally be like second unit probably did a lot of the more straightforward live action shots even with the ones with the bigger stars and stuff like that which is kind of a fascinating thing to think about because that would never be the case now
0: let's talk a little bit about the the, what happens to murphy and then the development of robocop this scene frustrates me in the factory because his partner is so dumb and i don't understand why she acts I, i guess maybe part of why she's so interested in Murphy after and figures out it's RoboCop and everything is because she feels a little bit bad but she kind of she's the kind of reason it got botched she was not there to back him up and uh that really frustrated me so he gets shot to shit which is hysterical they like shoot God. his fucking hand off and then his arm off and then just blast him apart never hit his head until the very end though which is lucky and he gets They made
1: him and us suffer a lot first.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> and then they they put him away very cold but I like that I like the whole rebuilding him process. I like the science, the team of scientists. I like how there's like some women on it, which is cool. And they're all, re- it's again, the nonchalantness of what they're doing and how they're celebrating in front of it and having all and talking about it in front of it and having all these milestone s- celebrations in front of him and all that. I love it. It's very dystopian It is um, and reads almost criminal in some way. And I, I, so I love the unsettling nature of it. This is just this, This mega corporation that obviously is inherently above the police force locally that just kind of acts in a wand manner does whatever it wants and is now like doing experiments on bodies, basically telling people that he's dead and then rebuilding him like this. And obviously that where the movie gets starts getting deep is after this, actually, in some sense. Obviously, it's a commentary up to this point, but the more spiritual, ethereal deepness of it, I think, comes after this. So what do you make of all of that, the the Murphy's downfall and then the rebuilding of him into RoboCop and all of those scenes?
1: I mean, thinking back to, you know, Murphy, human Murphy getting eviscerated, it is a scene with a lot of tension because you're just thinking, like, where is the partner? Where is she? Where is Officer Lewis and here's a bad guy with one shotgun. Now here comes this the bad guy number two with another shotgun. Here comes number three with another shotgun. Here comes number four. He's got a shotgun. It's like, oh shit, where is the partner? It gets to the point where you're like, even if the partner comes, they're fucked Yeah, type of thing. And then there's a buildup. And then the release is just the friggin' unleashing of violence on this guy that is there and, and black and white and plenty of red for us to see. It feels like it goes on. It feels like it goes on for 45 minutes. And then, you know, they just blow this guy to smithereens. He's a he's a bloody chunk of meat by the end of it. And then that segues directly to the operating room scene, which is so fucking hard to watch. I'm not even sure I watched the entire thing. I think I turned away because it's a very disturbing... It's anything that you ever saw on like M.A.S.H., Like taken to the third degree, like Mr. Thirsty. And you just hear the liquid sucking and they got all the medical tools and all the jargon. And you just, you see all the blood and it's just like, Oh my God, just the way it's presented. It's really kind of beautifully shot, but very disturbing. And then that, the way that links to whatever's left of this guy being alive and seeing them see the surgeons and the doctors at first, and then the, you know, that goes and bleeds over to the OCP executives kind of celebrating with champagne through his viewfinder. And it does, it gets very dystopian and you start to feel very bad for this guy. I think what's interesting though, dating back by, you know, from this point, you start thinking of this from the beginning of the movie, you don't really know that much about Alex Murphy, you know, like they didn't try to build his character out or get you to know him in any way. Like, what kind of cop is this guy? Who is he? What is his personality? Why am I invested? Why do I care? You get a little bit of the wife that he has a wife and son. I think the only thing you get of the son is that, you know, he's fascinated with his dad, you know, this TV show, and he wants his dad to do this quick draw thing that his hero does on this TJ Laser, Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And that's really all, you know, like they give you a little bit But you even it's like, what kind of cop is this guy? Is he kind of the funny Mel Gibson type? Is he the more serious, stern enforcer type? Is he the big brother? Is he the leader of men? Like, who is this dude? And I don't know if it would be even worse by this point if we did get to know him and start to feel for him a little bit. Maybe it would be even more sickening. But I, it's weird that they made that choice of not fleshing him out as a character before he becomes a RoboCop because really all you think of is this guy could have been any of these cops. What we know, the only thing we really know is that the cops are the faceless heroes that are fucked in this world. They're completely doomed from the word start. And he's the one that we're following. He's the one that gets fucked up. He's the one that's going to be, you know, they're going to, turn this chunk of meat into this hero to further their own ends. It's not for him. It's not for the police force. It's so they could create this product. And it's interesting that we don't know more about Alex Murphy before he becomes RoboCop and I think that's why the movie in its weak points that really it becomes obvious now. That's the weak point in the movie. We why do we really care about Murphy beyond the fact that he's a cop in this world. We really don't. We really yeah, don't know about him individually. We yeah. know he's he loses his wife and kid. He loses his home. This terrible thing happens to him. But beyond that, the only thing they do is, and I think they could have played this up more, is they maybe, he smiles a lot before, you know, in the offing when we first get to know him. He does, they do make a point of showing Peter Weller smile. He's not... He's not humorless. He's not jokey like Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon, but it might have been a more interesting choice to make him very jovial and likable. And then this thing happens and then he becomes this very serious, you know, drop it type thing, you know, and that contrast. But they don't. They do make him smile a bunch and you never see him smile as Robocop until the end. But yeah, I thought that was a very interesting choice. It's like it would have been kind of cool to get to know this guy and just get into his life and what he was about and what he was invested in and maybe he was very heroic, you know, we don't we know next to nothing. Just a slight bit of texture. And uh the Nancy Allen character is interesting too, man, because I don't I you know what's weird about this movie? Even that so many decades since it's been made Kurtwood Smith is the only dude that I recognize from something specific in that 70s show. The rest of them, yeah, I've seen their faces in TV and movies dating back to the 70s, but I couldn't tell you a single thing they were in specifically. Besides, I realized that Nancy Allen is one of the stars of Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill, which I still haven't seen because I can't fucking find it anywhere. And this is one of the reasons why we still need to watch DVDs because I can't find Dress to Kill anywhere. And it's like every director's favorite movie. But she's the only one because I couldn't tell you another thing. Peter Weller's in, I know he's been in 80 things. And this cast is exemplary of just that very dynamic. It's like, I know this guy, I know thug number two from 30 things. Couldn't tell you one thing. Right. You know, so that was really interesting, too. But yeah, I thought they could have. um, I I wonder about Peter Weller as a choice, too. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about his acting chops. What do you think about him? I know he's coming back in the game, too.
0: We don't. It's as you said, we don't get a piece of we get more humanity really out of like the other cops than we do him. He's more of like an observer. We see the situation at Detroit police through him, especially in that locker room scene. We see shots, obviously, of his kind of somewhat detached partner and all of the rest. I I don't think we see, and I think his stoicness or whatever works for the part of Robocop, which might be why they wanted him. But yeah, it is a little stiff and weird. I don't know who else I would have imagined in that part, but it works fine for me, I guess. I'm just, um, yeah, I'm interested at this point in in how it becomes more sci-fi, or at least the sci-fi becomes deeper because of this connection of the family and the way that they present the family, the TJ laser thing, is the connection that he has to the real, the real world connection is that he puts his gun in his holster like that. And he is inspired to do that from that fake TV show that his kid was into. And we see that in the flashback. The other weird thing about the flashback is that you think he's having trouble at home or like something urgent is happening based on the way his wife was talking to him. But then it's like, he's just like, I have something to tell you. I love you. Or whatever. But you only like <laughs> see that at the, at the very end. It's kind of sad. Classic yeah. 80s apartment and he's walking through the abandoned house. It's pretty neat, punches through the the CRT monitor of the 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 guy trying to sell him the house or whatever, which is pretty cool, the the auto-playing video. But I like the depth here about Robocop becoming kind of conscious, conscious of what his past life was. And he says something kind of meaningful, I think, at some point where he says, like, I can feel them, but I can't remember them, or something like that, which yeah. is which is somewhat deep. But I love the scenes in this in the lab where they're uh kind of eating lunch and just dicking around and all the, t- all the, the different um, tools are like going out of control and all the different metrics are, are popping off and they're not even paying any attention and then they're all running around looking at everything and realizing that he's basically become awake. And I like the decision they make that he basically had a dream or that he was thinking of something and then they're like, oh, who cares? And they kind of let him go out there anyway, which I think is pretty interesting. This is around the time when he shoots that dude through the chick's skirt.
1: Yes. Pops him in his <laughs> dick. I almost forgot about that scene. Isn't it interesting though? It's like one of the overarching things that you're supposed to carry through this movie is like how much human is left in that can, right? Like how much humanity is left of this guy, but who's the guy? It's like, oh, you know, it's just, the movie is just basically telling you it doesn't matter. It's just the mat. All that matters is that he was a human, right? So even that scene where he and his partner after they decide that the police force is going to kill, with the you know, with the exception of maybe a few who dissent, are going to take RoboCop out and they're licking their wounds in that in that warehouse. And you get you know the Anakin helmet off moment, which really reminded me of that. It's like wow, this really has the spirit of the end of Jedi, where they're on the floor of the yeah. star destroyer and there. Even him know. taking
0: his helmet off was very Jedi like that. That shot. very much yeah. so.
1: I was like, this is a direct reflection of that almost but even in that scene and the the baby food and all the things you're supposed to feel bad for him about and just the loss of like life as he knew it it is interesting again it's like I really wish I could feel more invested he's you, you still are you still are somewhat invested but it's just like why didn't they go that extra mile Just make this guy a character that we get to know just a little bit because I know, I know there's like that knee jerk thing of like, we got to get to Robocop, we got to get to 209, you know, Ed 209, we have to get to all the badass, you know, set piece shit, but a little more buildup because the movie's relatively short. I could have used another 10 minutes. Why not another 10 minutes just get to get to, uh, you know. Us to know Alex Murphy. I think that's, a, I think that was a big miss, especially knowing, maybe not knowing at the time, but knowing now that this was going to spawn into a whole, you know, media franchise, you know, of cartoons and remakes and sequels and the whole thing. But yeah, I, I, w- I really wish we got, I like the fact that the partner is a woman. I like the fact mm. that they created that dynamic and also kept it from being mostly kept it from not getting romantic. Thought that was cool. Um, and maybe, maybe somewhat forward thinking for 1987, but yeah, she's a little, she's a little vacant. She's an empty vessel. That one It's like, I get a lot of, I get a Meg Ryan energy from her. Yeah, sure. Right. A little bit. And maybe that's a physical thing, but yeah, I don't get, there's not, there's also not a lot of substance with that character. I think we get the most actually interesting, Sort of looks character-wise from the bad guys, some of the bad guys.
0: Um, the only last things I wanted to bring up, and we can talk about whatever you'd like to as well, is the kind of executives going after each other. This I found this, this plot line to be a little less compelling because it really should just be focused on the company and the police and the society and kind of how those all interact with each other. I just think that's a much more seamless and simple way to tell the story. So to have this fight between two executives that I don't give a shit about and that aren't good people and have it. it is a twist that you don't expect. Like I, you don't I don't I guess maybe you should expect it. To, why is that guy, that older guy getting clowned on so much? And then he's going to come <laughs> back for his redemption, obviously. And it's quite dark with the grenade and and he just fucks that guy up and destroys him. But I don't know. I wasn't very compelled by the corporate part of it. I'm, I'm compelled by the corporate overseeing of this police force and their new city and all of that. I just the tension within that entity was kind of irrelevant to me. I don't know if you agreed. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean there, I, I guess it's another level to the statement of like these mega corporations, right? You have the number two and the power struggle with the aspiring number two, right? Something that definitely you could see going on in a company. You know, these are unsavory characters. Number two. Got, <laughs> number two. I mean, <laughs> I mean we know who the best number two is ever, but yeah, I like you know what? It's it's interesting. I think those two In Miguel Ferrer and uh, Daniel O'Herlihy are two of the best actors in the movie. And they probably give two of the most entertaining performances. I think uh, Ronnie Cox, rather. Ronnie Cox plays Dick Jones. And Ronnie Cox, I know he said he... I don't know him. Again, I couldn't point to a single thing he did, although I saw him for years. He's like that dude that always popped up on like the Love Boat. Sure. And Fantasy Island. And, you know, maybe he played an old cop in Seinfeld, that type of thing. But he always played good guys. So he wanted to play a bad guy. And he did it with that kind of delicious, you know, unapologetically evil thing. And then I like the idea of a young executive who's just trying to climb the ladder. And, you know, he he's just doing it with malice and he's an opportunist who sees an opening and he's gonna do it. And the whole RoboCop thing is a means to his end. You know, again, it's just another thing kind of in this movie going on in the background. But what you wonder about is, is that the two guys or, or the guy that they're working under or that they're trying to overthrow or at least that they're serving in the old man, the nameless old man, is kind of a good guy, which was kind of interesting. Again, they don't emphasize this dynamic in the movie, but that's interesting that kind of the, the head of this supposedly evil corporation really isn't a bad dude. It's the guy, and, but he's also kind of a figurehead. It's the other guys working for him that are really kind of um, the power holders, right? So it's kind of it's interesting, but I enjoyed the performances. I thought having Kurtwood Smith play Clarence Boddicker was a really, really weird choice. He's a really weird type. Like he just looks, I'm, I'm trying not to channel that 70s show because I know that's what we all know him from. But he's got this really sort of conventional dad energy. He's not, you know, he doesn't have any sort of physical prowess. He's not a big guy. They don't present him as like this Lex Luthor brainiac supervillain type. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't really have anything. He's just kind of (laughs) gross. And maybe that's effective, You know, he just kind of like this totally despicable, I think completely unappealing, very unsavory, not only his look, and I'm not trying to be mean at all, but like the way he looks, but also how he acts, the spitting, right? He spits on RoboCop's face. He spits on the desk, you know, the whole interaction with the secretary, with the gum. He's just kind of, he's just kind of disgusting, And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's effective, but it's a weird, I like things a little more cartoony. You know what I mean? Like, let's see somebody with like some sort of physical threatening dimension to that aspect or somebody who's just like a criminal genius or, you know, there's nothing really that interesting about him except that he's a bad guy. And I think he's just really cast weird. What I will say about him. Is that if you think about that 70s show, and now mm-hmm. they do that 90s show for Netflix, which is new earlier this year, I think. And you think back to 1987, this, this guy has not aged. He really hasn't aged
0: yeah, that in, much. In, this, in that movie, he was maybe 40, 43, 42 in, the, in this movie. And this okay. was one of his first roles in film, I guess, at the very least. And because he was, let me see, BA and MFA, on stage, other roles. Yeah, because he's 80 years old, but his first role is 1980. So his first wow, role was, in was in 1980. So yes, yeah,
1: yeah. so he he'd only been rolling along, probably in smaller roles, right? For the better part of seven years.
0: But he's yeah, got an Yeah, that's extension, interesting. Yeah, he's got an extended. Oh, he did one video game, Fallout Tactics, Brotherhood of Steel. Um, yeah, so that was that was the other thing that was sticking out to me. And then of course there's this whole thing of Directive 4 or whatever and the inability for the cops to attack the business ultimately or whatever, which I think is fundamentally interesting, no doubt about it. Um, But otherwise I really think my, my major focus on what I like about this film and I I did enjoy it was just kind of the meta commentary. I thought it was, it it had some interesting things to say. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. And I am interested in the other films, although not entirely, I'm sure I'll get to them. Robocop two, Robocop three, I doubt I'll ever watch the cartoon. I'm, I am interested to know more about the the remake and how that did. And it would be mm. interesting to see a product like this come through the modern lens of society today where it's, it would have to kind of walk a different and tow a different line, I think, for what it was trying to do. So there, there is that as well. But um, is there anything else unsaid about RoboCop that
1: you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I wonder if we do the other ones on Knockback. Two supposed to be – I hear good things about two. That came – just a few years later, I think in 1990, maybe, which is a yeah, really just- interesting time for filmmaking, especially sci-fi filmmaking, because technology was really starting to change at that time. I think things like The Godfather, <laughs> right? Things were probably really falling apart by, by uh, RoboCop 3. And the remake is interesting. I was really pleased to see Peter Weller is going to return to do the voice of, or he has returned to do the voice of RoboCop. In the game in Rogue City. That, oh, cool! That sounded that. yeah, which is really cool that they got him. And um, yeah, man. I mean, I think I'll always think of this movie as you know just that thing where it's like remembering it as a thirteen-year-old, like it was the this new thing where it was like this visceral, ugly, realistic, pulls no punches disturbing, drastic, like unapologetically gory that really crossed over into horror, too real for me anyway, Mm -hmm. type of presentation for stop motion that again, like really carried over into, I really think like his next two films, which by the way, didn't stop me from seeing each one in the theater with Total Recall. And then Total Recall didn't stop me from seeing Starship Troopers. Each one a little different Sort of twist on sci-fi, but really carried over that same consistent treatment of, uh, of a Paul Verhoeven and his main people that really made it feel like his thing, you know? And again, like kind of opened up my, our worlds a little bit, even if it wasn't for us, because we were really used to that softened, much less sharp popcorn flavored made for TV dynamic of violence that that's really what we were used to. You know, that's really what that that sort of appropriate for all ages thing that even if there was that weird thing that was in the movie, like, you know, think of the dinner scene in Temple of Doom, mm-hmm. right? With the monkey brains. Man, one of my favorites. There might have been a little taste, but just enough to challenge us. But it wasn't the overarching style of the movie. It was just a little something, something. You know, this is the first movie that gave us that like the full whack. It was like, sure. th- this is what you're going to get. And this is uh, this is how it's going to be, you know. And it's it's so interesting because he really, literally, is the third director's name I knew. And at this time, it was a negative connotation. And 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 again, the satire super super important. I want to give a shout out to the Newcomb board game commercial because that whole line of Pakistan Pakistan is threatening my border. Yeah. The kid's like, Pakistan is threatening my border. The dad's like, That's it, Buster. No military aid for you. Whatever. <laughs> hilarious. I mean, I don't even know. I wish I could go back and observe 13-year-old and watching that in the movie theater because I have no idea what I would have possibly made of that. It probably went so far over my head. That's
0: the thing with Starship Troopers that, Tripbers, I, that it, went over, it went over my head too. Like The you know, the whole
1: movie. Yeah. I think so. I think, and I was much older. I mean, that was the late nine, 97, something like that.
0: Yeah, Starship Troopers 97. that came out,
1: yep. right? And that probably went over my head. I was almost graduated from college by then, which is... You know, really interesting to think about.
0: Dude, the interesting thing about Peter Weller too that I didn't know is just that he's like a pretty in-demand TV director. He's done, a, oh, shit, I didn't he's done a shit ton of TV. Yeah, if you read about him, he's directed. Um, he was directing a bunch of, and I have a, well, let me see here, pull it up. There's yes, a lot sure. of it, but he. the big things he's directed a ton of episodes of Monk. Okay. He did, he did a, I think, an entire season of Dexter, an entire season of Sons of Anarchy, a bunch of Hawaii 5 under the dome, mm-hmm. the last ship. Rush Hour, Game of Silence, the MacGyver remake. Um, I don't oh, know, I didn't you guys know any read about of this. It. Um, Magnum, the new Magnum PI, the Mayans MC spinoff, and a bunch of other stuff. He's the director of wow. a lot of that stuff. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, that is, I like yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I've always That'd wanted to cool. watch that show, The Last Ship. I don't know why I've never Got gotten to it. it. It's a premise after a global virus. It's actually. Pretty interesting. After a global viral pandemic wipes out over 80% of the world's population, the 218-person crew of the unaffected U.S. Navy Arleigh Burke class guided missile destroyer, the fictional USS Nathan James must try to find a cure and save humanity. It's uh, 56, oh, interesting. Uh, 56 episodes. Yeah. Sounds pretty interesting, but... One yeah, it does. Know. There's too many other things to watch. I don't know if I'll ever Oh, my that. God. It's but, impossible. Um, my friend, that was RoboCop. I, I uh, rented it on Amazon. I think it might be available on something, but that's fine. Three ninety nine. I think it might be on... Paramount Plus or something. I have no idea.
1: Yeah, but- I think is a Paramount Plus. There's another. Oh, it might have been a uh, MGM Plus, which I never even heard of. Oh, before my God. Come on, man. While.
0: MG. Get out of here, dude. Yeah, no, it's a thing. Yeah, I'm not doing that. And I love some <laughs> MGM movies. I mean, Red Dawn. Are you kidding? But I'm not signing up for that. I'll just buy Red Dawn like a normal person. Uh, but yeah, that was funny. You to- know
1: what's interesting? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Disney owns now through the Fox merger or buyout, whatever. Disney owns the 1988 animated RoboCop series. I don't know if they own any of the other media in the franchise, but that's interesting. Which is it's disturbing, maybe even a little bit. Yeah. But that's interesting that Disney is now associated somehow with RoboCop. Very
0: yeah,
1: interesting. A lot Very of rumors about
0: Disney great. recently about uh. You know, I well I sent you that long ass article. I don't know if you read it for, about Bob Iger. It took it yeah, was of huge. Course. It was a great, great article about him. It took like an hour to read probably. And uh yeah, it was just so much interesting insight, but now there's a lot of murmurings about them being interested in maybe buying electronic arts and
1: doing all oh. that kind of
0: stuff. And it's like I don't I don't want Disney and the in more in the games industry. I don't think that they're a positive creative force right now, in my opinion. So I don't I don't need that energy in our
1: space. Yeah. There's some fallout going on. Um, across the Disney brand, like I know Pixar is having a hard. T- like they've been very vocal about Disney Plus. Like, why do we spend two hundred dollars, two hundred million dollars on this Pixar movie to go straight to Disney Plus? Like they're being vo- Like the the creative director who took over from Lasseter, Pete Doctor. I think he rules. There's a trifecta that rules over there. He's one of them. He basically said in an interview, like, I have a problem with this Disney Plus thing. Like, we're working so hard on these movies and they're being released for free. And he's blaming it. He's blaming the reception on that rather than maybe these movies just aren't as good as Toy Story. So there's like this political infighting, which is so interesting because usually that's very tight lip behind closed doors type of conversation. The fact that's leaking out to the public is... Really interesting. I do one and DreamWorks announcing that they're gonna do forty percent of their animated feature films farmed out. That's fucking weird. Hmm. You know, that was usually a thing like you do a DreamWorks movie in-house. You do a Disney movie in-house. It's a feature film. Yeah, they're doing you know?
0: they're doing what video game publishers would call second party arrangements now. Right. Where it's like subcontracting. You, yeah, you subcontract and own the IP and have someone else do it for you. And yeah. That's a tale as old as time in video games. And sometimes comes a lot of great, the greatest games of all time are second party, but um, it does seem to to diminish the brand. That's why, you know, for instance, with PlayStation, I just don't want them to expand very much more because you, you lose sight of what that is. As Nintendo said, you cannot go out and buy Nintendo. And I think that that was a very insightful. thing. I love that. You know, you and
1: can, sometimes you know, that's good. Like what you're describing is good for the workforce. It gives more people more jobs. But here's the problem with DreamWorks. They're not farming it out to American studios. So American animators are fucked. You know, so that stuff that was going to be done in Los Angeles, let's say, it's going to be farmed out. It's great for the Canadian animators or the Korean animators or, you know, Brazil is another rising force in animation. But, you know, where what's going to happen to the American animators? <laughs> it's going to be nothing left. Yeah. True enough. So, yeah. Another conversation for another time, my Indeed, friend. Indeed, my friend. Well, I appreciate your time today. Dave, do you want
0: to end with a dad joke like we usually do? I
1: do. I have a perfect one from our friend... I know who's your friend too, James, coming through to us on Twitter. I still call it Twitter. Do you call it X or
0: Twitter? Twitter. I'll, it's the same. I, I mean, I, not to offend anyone, but I. it took me five years or more to start calling the Washington football team the Washington football team instead of the Redskins. So, And I still sometimes <laughs> call them the Redskins just out of – so it's going to be Twitter for at least it. the next five or ten years probably.
1: It's hard. That's a hard one, the Twitter thing. Anyway, coming to us on social media. How's that? James says this, call. My brother accused me of stealing clothes, and I nearly shit his pants. <laughs> Very funny. I like that one. I love that one. Immediately when he sent it, I said, I'm using it. That's in. My one friend, of my
0: favorites. appreciate your time today.
1: Oh, yeah, it was fun. Thank appreciate you Appreciate everyone out there Thank as well. Thank you for doing it.
0: Yeah, no, no problem. RoboCop, we're getting it done early so we can open ourselves up this week to... Get some last minute things done. So I appreciate your mm-hmm. moving your schedule around and uh, we'll be back. We'll be, I know people are wanting us to get back to games. So we'll get back to them in short order. Probably not the next episode, but maybe the next the episode after that, we'll get back. Yeah, into that game. sounds like a good plan. Maybe do Final Fantasy four or something, but um, all right, my friend, in the meantime, Dave, be well, my you best to you and yours. Yeah. Thank you. Same. Uh, See you soon. Yeah, very soon. And uh, thank you all uh, out there for your love, kindness and support of all things. Last day media, patreon.com slash last day media, merch, last Time to go. We'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. William Holbert, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, SLV FMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Kyle Johnson, Enucleator, Daniel Beresford, Brian Williamson, Jorge Padua, Vance Cody, Rallo, Mr. Ayub, Casey Raymond, Denny Sniperteeth, Extian, Magic Marker 215, Adam Tabiat, Jordan Vallett, Ross R. Lowe, Kevin Hawley, Hugo Della Austin Lipka, Paul Warren, Harold Eustache, Will Williams, Dinos, Roar, Nichols Renaud, Shane Breck, Sean Llewellyn, Michael Mash Potato, Sweaty Magic, Nate Izod, Hargeet Chani, Ellis, Albion, Josh Sullinger, Andrew Roman, Jacob Donovan, Dark Archer SC, My Name is Mayo, Jason R. Sean Hatfield, Christopher Knock, Ryan Daly, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Steve Stompy, Sorta Serious Gaming, Mark Arnold, Whiskey Sin, Zia Parrocks, Sean Miles, Relentless Rex, Alan Tunick, Dustin Klingman, Christian R., Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Jacob Hancock, Luke Aldersley, Dustin Graff, Zach Cohen, Peyton Stone, Fad. Bear, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asac Paredes, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Halsey, Deal or Die, T Bone 007, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Betty Ann Moriarty, Travis, Joe, Ross Chandler, H Trons, Antonio C., Ryan, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Theo, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, Of Fortuna, John Zile, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadeth, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapierre, Saul Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Matt Flowers, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Kendrick Caius, Jimmy Rodriguez, Rockin Ace, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Adam Hall, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Anthony Marola, Saqib Alam, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Nayman, Toby Ryland, Stewie 108, Andy Miller, Patrick Montgomery, Richter 86, Derek Wechter, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Joel Holcomb, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Logan Sharp, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chand, Organic Produce, Carlos Algaret, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Jush, Martin Beck, Jerome Ferrera, Joey Andricek, Nathan R. Joel McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Uzel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, John Schultz, Tom Quinn, Anton K, Alan Tremblay, Ryan T. Mandel, Porkin Beans, Jean-Francois Forzi, Tony Zaniga, Robbie Hensley, Shane Miller, Alex Cabrera, Corey Dustin, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vazquez, Adam Kinniston, William O'Carroll, Bo, Jorge Pal, Cannonball Jones, Thomas Sablin, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alexander Scott. Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gonthaliger, Alex Mones, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, Austin Riley, Paul Joyce, Allen Hopkins, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Don Lee, John Cordero, Ashley Carlson, Marius Carson Peterson, Tydler Harris, Kyle Martin, Madmock Media, Bol Burkholtz, and Jonathan Rice. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich.